Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians read through the Book of Concord and discuss what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we're going to look at the Saxon Visitation Articles, which is included in the appendix of the Reader's Edition of the Book of Concord. And I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dole Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this document today is Pastor Brian Thomas. He is the pastor of Grace Lutheran in San Diego, California, and especially notable for our show here today. Pastor Thomas is also the author of the book, Wittenberg versus Geneva, a biblical bout in seven rounds on the doctrines that divide. Pastor Thomas, welcome to Concord Matters. Well, good morning. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And uh, it's certainly an honor and joy to have you on today, especially as I noted there in the introduction to this episode today, that the book that you authored is very much in line with I think what we're going to be looking at here today in the Saxon Visitation articles, and I think a brief description on your book sums up that really quite well. So I'm just going to go ahead and read the description of your book here. It says this, what are the differences between Lutherans and Calvinists, and do they really matter? In Wittenberg versus Geneva, Brian Thomas provides a biblical defense of the key doctrines that divide the Lutheran and Reformed traditions for nearly five centuries. It is especially written to help those who may have an interest in the Lutheran Church but are concerned that her stance on doctrines like predestination or the sacraments may not have biblical support. To get to the heart of the matter, Pastor Thomas focuses solely upon those crucial scriptural texts that have led Lutheran and Reformed scholars down different paths to disparate conclusions as he spars with popular Calvinist theologians from the past and the present. And I just want to say, I've read your book, Pastor Thomas, and I thought it was really well done. And it's also been helpful to me as I've shared it with others that I've worked with as a pastor, who, especially some that come from those Reformed backgrounds. And so thank you for your excellent work in that book. And also, I share all that particularly because it does pertain, I think, to what we'll be covering here today in the Saxon Visitation articles, which you've also written specifically about. And so I guess really to oversimplify what I'm trying to say here. In many ways, the Saxon Visitation articles are all about the differences between the Lutherans and the Calvinists, or the Reform, we might say, and those key doctrines that divide. So, Pastor Thomas, go ahead and give us some deeper background then on these Saxon Visitation articles, what we're going to cover here, what they are, when and why they were written, and how they were used, and so forth. Okay, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad the book was helpful. And really, it is just almost a commentary on these articles in, in one respect. So following the death of Martin Luther in 1546, the Lutheran Church really entered a pretty tumultuous period as an ecclesial game of back and forth was played in the German lands, and particularly in Saxony, between Lutheranism, Roman Catholicism, and Calvinism, according to the religious taste of political office bearers at the time. So when Elector August of Saxony died in 1586, and that's just six years after the Book of Concord was really finalized, those surrounding his young son Christian 
included counselors and theologians who favored the theology of Geneva, who were more Calvinist-leaning, and they were led by Nicholas Krell. He and some other what are known as crypto-Calvinist leaders nullified the, the authority of the Book of Concord, and they replaced Lutheran professors and pastors with followers of Calvin. Five years later, Christian died, and his cousin, Duke Wilhelm, then restored Lutheran theologians and pastors to key positions in his court, the Saxon court, and they reestablished the Lutheran symbols, the Book of Concord, and as well as liturgical practices in local churches. And it's here that Wilhelm commissioned these visitation articles of 1592, whose primary author was Aegidius Hunnius, what a name. He was a newly installed professor at Wittenberg, and he had to deal with fellow professors who were more Calvinist-leaning, so he was the right man for the job. And these articles were used then to catechize churches in Lutheran doctrine and practice through a series of pastoral visitations. And as you said, the key differences between Calvinism and Lutheranism are brought into sharp focus in four succinctly written articles, and they concern the Lord's Supper, the person of Christ, the sacrament of holy baptism, and lastly, predestination and the eternal providence of God, which is a, a bit misleading, that last one, because it really has to do with the atonement of Jesus, the unlimited atonement of Christ and universal grace, which is to say that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world and God desires everyone to be saved. And these articles were appended to every edition of the Book of Concord, published in Saxony until the forced union of Lutherans and Reformed under the Prussian Order of 1817 which also just happened to lead a bunch of Saxon Lutherans to hop on a few boats. They came to America, landing in the port of New Orleans and eventually settling in Missouri, from which arose our synod, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. So there's a deep connection to these articles, although they're not very well known. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said there, these Saxon visitation articles were appended to every edition of the Book of Concord, especially published in Saxony up until that Prussian Union. And as I've wanted to be sure to highlight with each of these documents that we've been covering here from the appendix of the reader's edition of the Book of Concord available from Concordia Publishing House, that each of these three documents, the Catalog of Testimonies, Luther's A Brief Exhortation to Confession, and these Saxon Visitation articles are not listed among the documents that we profess our confessional subscription to as contained in the Book of Concord of 1580. However, each of these three documents contained in the appendices that we've covered in this series have traditionally been included in various editions of the Book of Concord, along with the confessional documents. And as you noted there, this document in particular is special to us in the Missouri Synod because it was primarily Saxon Lutherans who came to America in the 19th century that formed the Missouri Synod. And there is a section of the editor's note of the reader's edition of Book of Concord that addresses this and why it's included. And so I'll just go ahead and read that here real quick. So the editor's note says this, the Saxon visitation articles were included in the Concordia Triglata. And just very briefly, as I pointed out in previous shows, the Triglata, which was published in 1917, has been the standard English translation for a long time here in America. But back to the editor's note here. So the Saxon visitation articles were included in the Concordia Triglata because of their long use among Saxon Lutherans, including those who came to America in the 19th century. Immigrants from Saxony brought with them copies of the Book of Concord of 1580 that included the Saxon visitation articles and the Saxon church order. Following the example of the Concordia Triglata, Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, also includes the Saxon visitation articles to honor, with gratitude, the memory of the Lutheran Church in Saxony. These articles, given their nearly 250 years of use in Saxony, are a useful insight into our Father's application of the Lutheran Confessions in the land of Luther and the Book of Concord. 
So that's just to make the point that this is special, especially to us here in the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, but even all the way back to Germany is, as it says there, a good application of our Lutheran confession and how that plays out in what we believe, teach, and confess. And so definitely an important document, and I'm glad to cover it, and especially to have you cover it here for us today. But with that, let's go ahead and get into this document then and start with Article 1. Now, I don't plan to read the entirety of the document on today's show, just as our primary purpose here with these documents is just to familiarize our listeners with the document, and there is a lot to cover. But I will bring in what each article is and then let you, Pastor Thomas, our excellent confessor today, tell us what's going on with each article and you'll bring in excerpts as need. But first here, Article 1 concerns the Lord's Supper. Now, why would that be the first topic of doctrine addressed here in these articles? Yeah, it is probably the biggest controversy between the Lutheran and various more radical Reformed groups starting way back with Luther and Zwingli, and it just continued on. And it, as we'll see, it's linked to some of the others. So the sacramental controversies are wrapped up very much so in the person and work of Jesus as well. So it's good that they just deal with the first things first. And it really sets the tone of where we stand on Scripture itself, and particularly the words of Christ. So each article has a positive statement, the pure and true doctrine of our churches, and then it lists what we believe, teach, and confess. They don't supplant the other confessions. They're really a supplement too. And then the positive statements are followed by the negatives. And since we're covering a huge swath of doctrine here in a limited amount of time, I'll just go over the positive statements and I'll contrast that a little bit with what we're denying. That is the Calvinist conception of these doctrines, if that's okay. Absolutely. And I think to make this point very briefly here too, this is somewhat related then to what we just covered on this show a few weeks ago and for several months there in the Formula of Concord, where we obviously get real deep into these doctrines. And as we kept seeing there in the formula, as we contrast with especially those crypto-Calvinists and so forth on these doctrines, they are very much linked. And so I think it's definitely a good way to cover it. So go ahead and take that away for us. Sure. So Article 1 is on the, uh, the Lord's Supper. And the main point to be made is that we take the simple and literal understanding of Christ's words of institution. In other words, there's nothing figurative going on. Jesus and the New Testament writers were not attempting some kind of nuanced grammatical gymnastics, whereby we as the readers are left uncertain regarding what Jesus said. So we're not at liberty to just insert, subtract, or change our Lord's words to fit our preconceived theology. This goes all the way back to Luther and Zwingli, And our tradition, all the debates that rage over the supper begin and end with our Lord and his word. And so we ask, what did Jesus say? So Pastor Sean, we have to keep in mind who said these words, right? Because if I said them to you, you would take them as a joke or dismiss them as the words of a lunatic. But these are the words of God incarnate. And so if Jesus wanted to say, this represents my body or this symbolizes my absent blood, he certainly could have. It's not as though the Son of God lacked the ability to communicate his command and promise. Moreover, the inspired writers of the New Testament honestly reported what they saw, heard, or had passed down to them by credible witnesses. And regarding the Lord's Supper specifically, St. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you in 1 Corinthians 11. Then he cites the words of institution. And so the next point the article goes on is exactly what's being received in the Supper then. And this simply follows from what our Lord said, right? There's things earthly, bread and wine, things heavenly, Christ's body and blood. Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body. And that's a very simple sentence, even in the Greek. There's a subject, 
this and a predicate, my body, connected by a linking verb, which is is. And for those listeners, it's been a while since you've maybe studied grammar. A predicate is that part of the sentence that tells us something about the subject. So what is the this that Jesus is handing them to eat? It's bread, of course, following the uh, Passover tradition. But he adds this new thing, right? It's a New Testament. He adds, this is also my body. And so the next point asks this question, where does this sacramental union between things earthly and heavenly occur? Well, it's right here on earth as we partake of Holy Communion. The whole point is we're eating and drinking. And it's important because the Calvinists believe that Christ cannot be bodily present here on earth following his incarnation. Our natural bodies can only be in one place, they argue. So for Christ to be true man, he too must be confined to one bodily location, and that location happens to be in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And that jumps us into the next article, so we'll get on into that in a moment. But lest anyone attempt to over-spiritualize matters, the article notes specifically what is received from heaven in addition to the bread and wine, and that's what we call, for short, the real presence, the true body of Christ that hung on the cross and the true blood of our Lord that was shed from that same cross. Again, I'm going to sound like a record, but it goes back to what Jesus said. And the next point the article picks up is by asking, how is this body and blood received? And the answer is, not only by faith, which is certainly important, but also orally. We're actually consuming this meal by eating and drinking, and yet this eating and drinking is unlike any other meal. And the phrase that we use for this is called sacramental union. And we get this from St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. He asks, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? St. Paul was likely the first to record the words of institution, and thus he offers the earliest commentary on the subject of the Lord's Supper. And the key word for Paul here is koinonia, which can be translated in English as participation, as in the ESV, or fellowship, or communion, union, or joint sharing. If either the wine of the cup or the blood of Christ is not real, then a communion between them is also not real. And the point is that Paul understood a real union of the sacramental elements that include both earthly and heavenly realities. So Paul is teaching us that the bread is not the body, but bears the body and is united with it in such a way that the one who partakes of the bread also partakes of the body. Now, how does this happen? How does this mystery occur? We don't pretend to know. We simply take Christ at his word and trust that he delivers on his promise. Ultimately, the promissory word of Christ is what makes the sacrament a sacrament. It's a performative speech act that accomplishes what it says. And so when Luther uses the prepositions in, with, and under to speak of Christ's presence in the Eucharist, he's not advocating a, a local presence as if Christ's body was literally baked into the bread. That was sometimes misunderstood by our opponents. But rather a definitive presence that safeguards Paul's sacramental participation of the body and blood from being separated from the bread and wine as Calvin and his followers taught. The Calvinists, by contrast, hold to what I call a spiritual presence of Christ, whereby we are raised, spiritually speaking, to commune with Christ via the Holy Spirit, simply by faith with him in heaven. But by no means do they believe he would advent with us on earth through this sacrament. And again, the point for us is that God really comes down to earth to us. We don't ascend to him in heaven. The kind of forgiveness one gets from God is not a mere announcement from heaven or a lecture about forgiveness, which we then have to work up the ability to believe, but a forgiveness which is actually worked in us 
by the very descent of Jesus into things humble and lowly, right, into earthen vessels. And that leads us to the last point of this article. The sacramental union rests upon the institution of Christ and not upon the faith or morality of the administrating pastor, right? You and I as pastors, we don't make the sacrament a sacrament. We don't possess any magic and neither does the communicant, nor does the absence of faith in either invalidate it. It depends upon Christ's efficacious word alone, which means those who are receiving it should actually believe it because both the worthy and unworthy receive what's offered in the sacrament, but to very, very different results. The person who believes what Christ has spoken receives forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. But as Paul notes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven and following, the person who partakes in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment on himself. And I think it's interesting then as we transition into Article 2, excellent job covering Article 1 there, but as I think you'll probably highlight really well for us here, the connection of each of these, I think it's interesting going into Article 2, all that you laid out there with Article 1. Article 2 is about the person of Christ. It actually echoes what we heard there in Article 1 about the Lord's Supper quite clearly. And so here again in Article 2, it seems that the error of the Calvinists is in wanting to claim that they believe God's word, yet also making it subservient to human reason, if you will, rather than accepting at face value, if you will, what God's word actually says. And so go ahead then and connect us into and take us through Article 2 on the person of Christ, and why are the Calvinists so adamant to try and elevate Christ's divine nature, but then limit his human nature and his physical presence here among us? Yeah, to your point, this article exists because of the Lord's Supper controversies. All the Christological controversies between Lutherans and Calvinists came to a head because of the debate over Christ's presence in the Supper. Now, because we affirm Christ's true presence in the bread and wine, Calvinists have argued that we fall short in maintaining the early creedal confessions of Christ's person as found in documents like the Nicene and Athanasian creeds. And so the first two points of the article here on the person of Christ are just a reaffirmation, though, that we Lutherans actually do confess the Christology of Nicaea that asserts that Jesus Christ is one person with both a divine and human nature and both entire. So the basic math is that he's 100% God and 100% man, and yet just one person not two. And furthermore, we adhere to what's called the Chalcedonian definition of 451 AD. And that affirms the human and divine natures are joined together in one person of Christ, and the words they use are without confusion, change, division, or separation. And this orthodox Christological position protects the integrity of both natures, God and man, while maintaining the unity of Christ's person. Now, it's really easy to get into the theological weeds on this topic, and I address it in my book in a way that's hopefully helpful for someone who's not fully acquainted with all the Christological controversies of the early church. The difficult question concerning this personal union of the two natures follows. How do the two distinct natures of the one person function or relate to one another if each nature has its own essential attributes, given that these attributes are mutually exclusive? Now, what do I mean by that? Well, God is omniscient, that he's all-knowing, but the human brain is limited in how much it can know. God is omnipresent, he's everywhere present, but a human body can only be in one place at a time. God is infinite, humanity finite, as we're bound by time. And since Jesus is both God and man, he must possess all the attributes of God and man. As God, he's, we'll say he's infinite and unlimited, but as man, he's finite and limited. So following Zwingli, the Calvinists said, 
the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. In other words, never do the two natures in Christ meet. They want to hold them together, but it's almost as if the natures of Jesus are glued together and they don't function together. The divine nature, they said, cannot communicate or work through the human nature. But I counter, really? Jesus physically walked on water. He walked through a locked door and appeared to his disciples in his post-resurrection appearances. He also disappeared after breaking bread with the two in Emmaus in Luke 24. These are miracles he did while on earth bodily that you and I cannot do. Now that he's ascended and glorified, why would we limit our Lord's ability to be God in the flesh? There's this great passage in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, that I like to use with my Reformed brethren. Paul says, See to it, no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, that's Jesus, for in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Paul warns the church, hey, be on high alert against setting human reason, and this is our problem with the Calvinists, setting human reason, tradition, or philosophy over and against the truth of Christ. The finite cannot comprehend the infinite? Think again, says St. Paul, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so in one simple sentence, Paul confirms that Christ's finite body does in fact contain all the fullness of his infinite divine nature not just a portion of that deity, but the fullness of it. And not only some of the fullness, but all the fullness, he says, posto pleroma, and not for a limited earthly time, but perpetually, as indicated by the present tense of the word dwell, and also since Paul was writing long after the ascension here. And lastly, this dwelling takes place explicitly in Christ's human body. And so we can say, with the early church fathers, Mary is the mother of God. Or reciprocally, as Paul says in Galatians 4.4, the Son of God was born of a woman. You see, in the New Testament, the attributes of each nature are often ascribed to the whole person. And following this, we see that both natures of Christ participate together in his redemptive work. How does that work? Well, if I have time, the formula of Concord illustrates this. It's, it's called the genus myostaticum. It's a fancy Latin term that just means the communication, really, of the two natures working together. And they use this great analogy of iron and fire. It's found in the Solid Declaration, Article 8. But I'll just quickly go over it. It says that an essential attribute of iron is that it's heavy, of fire that it's hot. Iron in itself is not hot, nor is fire heavy, but intimately join those two together by putting an iron rod into a fire, and we have a communication of the fire's attributes to the iron. Thus, we can properly say the iron is both hot and heavy. The essential attribute of the fire its heat is communicated to the iron, and yet both maintain their distinct attributes as iron and fire without confusion. And that personal union, as we'll call it, is not just a figure of speech, but it's real. You can see the iron glowing red, and if you were to touch it, you would certainly be burned. Thus, it's a real communication. Now, I think that's a great analogy of the two natures of Christ working together. No analogy is perfect, especially when comparing it to the incomprehensible wonder of the Incarnation. But I think it helps us understand the truth that in Christ, the divine attributes like omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence can be conveyed to his human nature without confusing or destroying the uniqueness of either nature. And this takes us to the last point of this article about Christ's session at the right hand of the Father. 
The Bible's clear that God is spirit, and therefore both Lutherans and, and Reformed have understood the expression, the right hand of God, as anthropomorphic, right? It's a metaphor in which the point of comparison is not spatial position, but strength and power. To sit at the right hand indicates special status and the execution of his reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the question of this debate, the Lord's Supper debate, was where is the right hand of the Father? And Zwingli and Calvin assume that God is far removed from his creation. But for Luther, since God is everywhere present, his right hand must also be everywhere present. The Bible never speaks of heaven as a place far, far away. In fact, it's not a material place that can be measured in terms of miles or kilometers or, or even light years from earth. And I like how the blessed Norman Nagel put it. He was discussing Christ's ascension in a sermon, and he said Jesus didn't travel thousands of miles like a space rocket. He rose up a little way above the earth, and a cloud received him out of their sight. All that was gone was the sight of Jesus. The cloud means that he's no longer within our ordinary limits. Jesus is now present and does things in the whole range of God's way of being present and doing things while remaining a man, but a man fulfilled and glorified. And I think that's important. We want to confess an orthodox Christology, but we want to make sure that we're being biblical and maintaining the uniqueness of Jesus as God in the flesh. That is a most excellent point. We want to confess an orthodox theology, but be biblical as we do so. You're doing that excellently. You are covering this very well and thoroughly for us. Thank you, Pastor Brian Thomas. We're going to go ahead and take a break here. This is a good place to take a break as we're covering the Saxon Visitation articles. On the other side of the break, we'll pick up with Article 3 about holy baptism. Once again, we'll see a progression of thought here, as I like to say on this show a lot. These are works of logic here, and there's definitely a logical progression. So we'll pick up Article 3, Holy Baptism, on the other side of the break. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUR. Hi, this is Pastor Apple of Sharper Iron on KFUO. On September 14th, we start the section of Proverbs filled with short pieces of wisdom for which the book is famous. An hour isn't enough time to go into each proverb in great detail, but I don't want you to miss something you really want to hear. Let me know what proverb you want to know more about by calling the listener comment line at 314-996-1542 or send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. As the list comes together, I'll share short bonus podcasts to help you sharpen your faith in Christ. You'll find them on kfuo.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with Pastor Brian Thomas, pastor of Grace Lutheran in San Diego, California, and he's doing a great job of walking us through these Saxon Visitation articles covering very thoroughly for us these doctrines that have traditionally divided us with the Calvinists and Reformed theologians doing an excellent job of that. And also we're seeing this logical progression as is true of the entire book of Concord, great logical works from our Lutheran confessors. And we see that progression and how all of these articles, though various articles in and of themselves are connected. And so as we get into article three on holy baptism here of the Saxon visitation articles, I again think it's really interesting that in Articles 1 and 2, we see how the Calvinists essentially limit Christ and what he can do. And then that leads really right into the problems with baptism here that are outlined in Article 3. It almost makes us want to ask, why even baptize at all if it doesn't do anything? 
their theology that they would say wouldn't essentially do anything. And so how do these errors in understanding baptism fit into the overall theology of Calvinism? And what's that in contrast to the Lutheran understanding of baptism? Go ahead and take that away for us, Pastor Thomas. Yeah, thank you, Pastor Sean. We're following the person of Christ, and we naturally think then of the work of Christ. And since we can't go back in time to the foot of the cross, we might ask, how are the benefits of Christ's life, death, and resurrection applied to us? How do we receive those benefits today? And the answer for us is holy baptism. If you look at this article, both the positive and the negative statements as a whole, concerning baptism, the basic gist is this. What is God doing through the sacrament of holy baptism? We think of the Old Testament, from Noah's floating rescue to Israel's Red Sea emancipation to Commander Naaman's Jordan River healing. The Old Testament is saturated, pun intended, with examples of God using water as a vehicle for his saving actions. While there are some unique nuances between the Reformed and Lutherans on this subject, the big E on the I chart has to do with what actually is happening through the sacrament. Again, what is God doing in this rite? And so the article extols several things God is doing. First, God cleanses us from our sins. Kind of the first thing that comes to mind when you think of water. It's a cleansing agent. You think of St. Paul's testimony of his own conversion in Acts, where he was told by Ananias in Acts 22, 16, why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. So baptism cleanses. Second, God gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit and saves us. In other words, God takes the work of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and implies it to us via his promissory and effective word along with the water. And so this leads us to think of Pentecost following St. Peter's powerful sermon, and the people are cut to the heart and ask him, what must we do to be saved? Answer, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And you might ask, what are we going to receive, Peter? for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. A twofold benefit there, forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. And of course, later in his own letter, Peter just comes right out and speaks of the baptism which now saves you, 1 Peter 3.21. The next benefit the article extols is that God unites us to Christ's death and resurrection. That's straight out of Romans 6. We are united to it. Another thing God does through baptism is to adopt us into his family. Uh, Using the clothing metaphor, which is a metaphor that really runs from the Garden of Eden all the way to the saints in heaven, Paul says in baptism, we literally put on Christ. Galatians 3, 26, the picture of the saints in heaven all dressed in white garments, signifying the purity that comes via this rite. Uh, The last thing mentioned in the article that God does through baptism is regenerate. And that's a big one. They have a real issue with that because we seem very Roman Catholic on this matter to evangelical ears. Or to say it differently, we are born again through baptism. This is John 3 with Jesus' discussion at night with Nicodemus. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so with all of this said, the Reformed believe that baptism is a sign of these things. But as you said, it doesn't actually confer them. It doesn't really give us what they promise. And the problem with this language, when we're talking about the sacraments, by the way, is we all use Augustine's sacramental vocabulary, but we don't always define our terms the same way. And sometimes, as different traditions, we're talking past one another. A sign points to a reality, but they would say it's not the same thing. So an analogy from the late R.C. Sproul, who's a Calvinist, a very popular Calvinist writer and pastor, he said that, let's say you're in my town, you're in San Diego, 
but someone's heading south to San Diego from Los Angeles, right? You're driving down the Interstate 5 to get to San Diego. You'll see a sign that says 45 miles to San Diego. And R.C. Sproul would say, you see, that's how the sacraments should be understood as signs. They point to something, they point to a reality, but they don't actually deliver it. Now, I respond as a Lutheran pastor and say, no, no, no. The sacraments are effectual because they are God's means of grace, right? He's the sovereign one doing the action. He's the subject doing the verbs. And two, if we are going to use the word sign, then they are like the sign you read when you actually reach San Diego. Welcome to San Diego, America's most beautiful city. The sign and the reality are one. Baptism gives what it bespeaks, the reality of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. It's interesting there you said he's the sovereign one doing the action, which I, of course, agree with. But I do think it's interesting in this sense, as we can then progress into Article 4 from here on predestination and the eternal providence of God, the sovereignty of God is kind of, I would almost say, the chief doctrine of Reformed theology. They ascribe everything to the sovereignty of God, and that's their typical starting place, whereas we would start on that chief article upon which the church stands and falls, the article of justification. And so obviously different starting places lead to a lot of the divisions as well. But I think this is a good connecting factor and an interesting contrast also that, as you say, it's the sovereignty of God that he says it does it. Holy baptism, the Lord's Supper, they're effectual because they actually deliver it. And that's the sovereignty of God at work to do what he says. But then as we get into predestination and eternal providence and its relation to the sovereignty of God, it kind of flips around on us. And I don't know, I'll I'll let you cover that a little more detail here. But if there is one doctrine, I would say, that is most strongly associated with Calvinism, it probably is this doctrine, predestination. And a close second would probably be the providence of God. And their starting place for all of this is the sovereignty of God. And as you said in the first half of this show, maybe even this is a bit of a misnomer title for Article 4, Predestination and the Eternal Providence of God, because it's really all about atonement, which then relates us back to justification, our chief doctrine. But I'll let you cover that. But on the surface, both of these, predestination and eternal providence of God, might strike us as elevating God's omnipotence, his omniscience, his sovereignty. However, as we read through the statements here in Article 4, or as we see them, it becomes obvious that actually these doctrines, as the Calvinists teach them, are yet another way in which they elevate human reason, and that theologians actually limit the power of God. At least that's my take on it. I'll, I'll let you say your piece on it here in a second. But could you comment then a little bit on that, and perhaps also lead us in some of the thoughts about whether a careful, logical theology of the Calvinists ends up being more or less coming down to a scriptural difference in theology between Lutheranism and Calvinism, especially as it relates then to justification and atonement and so forth. So go ahead and take us then into Article 4 here. Yeah, well said, Pastor, as we transition this. We, as Lutherans, by the way, have a very robust understanding of predestination, the providence of God, and God's sovereignty. We in no way deny those things. What we're simply saying is that sovereign God, that electing God, has chosen to work through means, what we call means of grace for short, his word and his sacraments. And we're simply just picking up what the biblical authors give us, how he brings that salvation to bear, uh, that sovereignty to bear through his chosen means. So this last article, it's titled Predestination and the Eternal Providence of God. However, I would argue that the actual points made in the article, while connected to it, largely have to do with the extent of the atonement of Jesus and God's desire for everyone to be saved. 
you see, because of their understanding of predestination, the Reformed, and I will give them this, they are quite consistent and logical. They assume that if there are those who go to hell as unbelievers, it must be because God predestined them to that end. And therefore, Christ could not have died for their sins because that would imply that Christ's death was pointless for some, that his death was ineffectual. And so Calvinists believe in something called limited atonement or particular redemption, which simply means that Jesus died for the elect alone. And this is truly why this article was written in the Saxon Visitation. The question I naturally ask is then, for whom did Christ die? And we Lutherans confess that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Thus, the very first point the article makes is a citation of John the Baptist's confession from John 1.29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So when we read this word world, it's cosmos, or even the word all, it simply means what it says. We take it at point value. The entire world. He died for every sinner regardless of whether or not they believe or will believe. Next, the article cites 1 Timothy 2.4, that God desires all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And I would add to this the very famous, you know, this is John 3.16 passage, but it's followed by verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. The object of God's love is the world, and the sending of the son was for the purpose of saving the world. Verse 17 makes it unmistakably clear that the world here means the fallen world, because it's the same world that's under God's condemnation, which is not limited to a particular group of people, i.e. the elect. And lastly, I would add 1 John 2.2, and Jesus himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. I don't know how much clearer you can get than this, but the Reformed are stuck in their logical system, and they cannot appreciate tension in their theology. And so they attempt all kinds of interpretive gymnastics to get around this. The third point moves on to the really the natural corollary for the Reformed, which is to say, once saved, always saved. In their theology, this is known as perseverance of the saints. If you are elect, Jesus died for you. If Jesus died for you, you cannot fall from grace. They don't believe in apostasy, which is to say a believer falling away from grace and the faith. The trouble is there are countless warnings in the New Testament against turning from Christ, and we believe they are not hypothetical warnings, but true. And if true, then they describe a real possibility that we can shipwreck our faith, which is exactly how St. Paul describes it to his letter to Timothy concerning two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And in several places, he cautions against falling away from grace or resisting the Holy Spirit. So on the grounds of Scripture alone, we Lutherans hold a few things in tension. And I want to emphasize that word tension. We're not going beyond Scripture, and we're not taking away. We live with it in our theology, accepting what has been written and passed down to us, and that we may not be able to figure out everything. But we certainly trust God, who is sovereign and knows all things, does and has. So we believe in universal grace. God truly desires the salvation of all people. We believe in universal atonement that Jesus died for the sins of the entire world. But we also include apostasy. There are genuine believers who unfortunately reject Christ and fall from grace. And the last point to be made is a really beautiful one, and I want to read it. It's the last point, point four of Article 4. And we read, this is out of the Concordia Reader's Edition. 
all sinners who repent are received into grace, and no one is excluded, even though his sins were as scarlet. For God's mercy is much greater than the sins of all the world, and God has compassion on all his works. In other words, we don't have to fret over whether or not we are elect. To try to peer in the eternal, into the eternal mind of God is pointless. Luther spoke of this as the hidden God. Right? There's no point in trying to get into the, the mind of God before the foundations of the world. Instead, we rest our faith and cares on the revealed God, Christ Jesus, God revealed with us and for us. Well said, and I think you did an excellent job in covering really what is actually a really big article of doctrine that is cause for a lot of debate, even still today. I mean, not long ago on this show, we covered predestination and election in three shows as we went through Article 11 of the Formula of Concord. And we didn't even get to everything that I think we could talk about with regards to this doctrine then. And as we saw when we covered the Formula of Concord in 1577, when they write Article 11 in the Formula, they begin it by stating there has not yet arisen any public dispute at all about the eternal election of God's children that has caused offense and has become widespread. But as one of the guests I had on in those three shows said, and I don't remember who it was, but one of them basically said, there was no public dispute then, but they saw it coming. And indeed, how quickly things changed after the Formula of Concord in 1577, because just 15 years later, at most, and really it was obviously a developing controversy for a while before then, so really only a few years after writing there has not yet arisen any public dispute, there is obviously a big dispute about the matter because of the Calvinists and crypto-Calvinists corrupting the true biblical Lutheran teaching. So it was obviously a big enough public dispute by 1592 that it was included as one of the articles that were deemed the four big disputes, if you will, between the Calvinists, Crypto-Calvinists, and the Lutherans here in the Saxon Visitation Articles. And I would also add here that quite interestingly, if not tragically, once again, it hits home to us in the Missouri Senate and our founding fathers, which, as we already said in the first half of the show, were Saxon Lutherans who would have brought these Saxon visitation articles with them as they emigrated from Saxony to Missouri, and it would have been appended to their books of Concord. And so, as we covered in a little bit more detail several weeks ago when we looked at Article 11 of the Formula of Concord, the predestination controversy of the late 19th century in the Missouri Senate lasted for quite a while, several decades at least. And as my guest who discussed it a few weeks ago, Pastor Finnern said, maybe you can say the debate is still with us with some underlying tension even still today, as he even once witnessed himself. But the predestination controversy was terrible for the Missouri Senate. In many ways, it ripped apart the Senate right after its founding. As I shared before, I serve a congregation that has another congregation directly behind it. And today, that other congregation is a part of the ELCA. But in the late 1800s, that other congregation literally split out of the congregation I serve over the predestination controversy. So it really was a bitter, bitter controversy. This doctrine can be very contentious. And perhaps you can even make the argument that the controversy was so strong it maybe came close to preventing the synod from lasting very long. But thanks be to God, the faithful work of C.F.W. Walther, among other theologians, but especially Walther, really prevailed and charted the course forward for the Missouri Synod on the matter of predestination. And they did so faithful to Scripture and drawing, leaning heavily on the Lutheran confessions as the faithful exposition of Scripture on those matters, 
and no doubt also these Saxon Visitation articles. And so we see that really this article for from the Saxon Visitation articles concerning predestination is not at all a small matter. And yet I think you did an excellent job, Pastor Thomas, in covering that very briefly and succinctly for us, just as you have covered really all of these four articles here in the Saxon Visitation articles really well. And none of them are quote unquote minor doctrines. Certainly not. I mean, the Lord's Supper, the person of Christ, baptism, predestination, None of these are unimportant or lightly disputed topics in the Christian church, and all are certainly important to the Lutheran confession. But again, the main point of the show today was not really to dig deep into the theology of these four articles of doctrine, which again, we've done that extensively in other places throughout the Book of Concord. However, today we wanted to familiarize you with what the Saxon Visitation articles are, their history, their context, and what they address. And so, again, I think you've done that really well for us today, Pastor Thomas. And now with about 10 minutes left in the show, I'd like to get your thoughts on why is this still important for us today? What's the benefit of the Saxon Visitation articles for us still today? And I bring that in especially for you, Pastor Thomas, because as I highlighted right at the beginning of the show and introducing you as my guest today, you've written a book which you said is really kind of a commentary on these Saxon Visitation articles. And so obviously that book is a contemporary book. It is intended for us to read and use still in our age here today. And so what would you say would be the contemporary benefit of the Saxon Visitation articles for our clear confession on these matters still today? Yeah, I think they nicely and succinctly bring out the key points of differences. And we live alongside our Reformed brothers and sisters. And as a pastor, I get people popping in the door on Sunday mornings from time to time from other traditions. And as a pastor, I want to be able to communicate and and relay those differences and build a relationship with them because obviously I'm biased. I'm Lutheran. I'm a Lutheran pastor. I want them to believe, teach, and confess the truth of Holy Scripture. And so articles like this and the whole point of writing a book like Wittenberg versus Geneva was to have a resource to hand to people who are maybe struggling with what they believe and what tradition they want to align themselves with. And these articles do it well. And the point of writing the book, kind of the way I did, was to make it a biblical defense to show those in the other traditions that we have real biblical support for what we believe and why we believe it, as well as our practices when it comes to our liturgical practices like the sacrament of holy baptism or the Lord's Supper. And I think that really is an excellent point, because one of the things, as you said in covering Article 4 there, you know, we got to give them some credit, especially that they are very logical, although I always like to distinguish on this show that there's a difference between human reason, as we often relate it to logic, and then true logic, which goes back to logos, the Greek word for word, and obviously God, Jesus, is the divine logos. He is the word made flesh among us, as John 1 teaches us. And so our true logic should be formed by that word. And so then the other credit that I often give to the Reformed is that they do have a genuine respect for the word of God. They just come, I often describe it this way, and I've done this on this show many times. It's like we're driving down a two-lane highway and we're driving side by side, going the same speed, And a lot of times, a lot of folks don't see a lot of difference, especially between your very traditional Reformed theologians and us as Lutherans, because we're saying a lot of the same things. And so it's like we're driving down that road, going the same speed and everything. 
But then all of a sudden, it's like the Reformed theologians get off and exit early or something. And I'm, as a Lutheran, you know, just still driving down the highway. And it's like, wait a minute, the destination's up here. That gospel proclamation is is right up there. Why are you getting off on this exit? And I often feel like that's really the tension between us. And so getting us back to scripture, especially with their appreciation and like us, truly wanting to be faithful to scripture that is a great place for discussion. And I, that's one of the things I really appreciated about your book, especially, and also our Lutheran confessions, is it does get us back to scripture and that true confession that is formed and shaped from scripture. That's the place to have our conversations. And so I think, especially, you know, in my interaction, and as I've brought up on the show several times, I think reform theology has really dominated in various ways, of course, a lot of American Christianity. We see this especially in some of your non-denominational churches and things of that nature as well, that it's really just Reformed theology. And sure, it takes on some different forms and it has some Anabaptist theology and those sorts of things that come in as well, but really dominates a lot of American Christianity. But also, especially here in the Midwest, I've encountered a denomination that is no longer in existence, but used to be called the Evangelical and Reformed. And it really kind of comes out of that Prussian Union that we talked about right in the setup of all of this, where there was this forced merger between the Reformed and Lutheran theologians and churches. And so they'll use Luther's small catechism and the Heidelberg catechism right alongside each other. And they really don't see that as the contrast it is. And then the Evangelical Reformed church body denomination has folded up and rolled into other denominations now. But some of those folks are still around. And as I engage them, and as I said, I've shared this book with some of them, your book with some of them, and they really appreciated, once again, that biblical focus. And so, again, thank you for your work and any concluding thoughts for you as we end our show here today with just a couple minutes left. Well, thanks so much. I would just add or reiterate what you've said. These things actually matter. These doctrines actually matter. And we're living in a time, an age where sometimes we don't want to deal with things that divide. And I get that. We want to focus on the things that unify, but we can't unify when there are doctrines that just are at odds with one another. And so I like how you use that word reason. We believe in ministerial reason. That is, we submit to God's word and accept what it says without adding to it, supplementing it, or taking away. And unfortunately, our Reformed brethren, I think, often have what's called magisterial reason. As they start with a logical starting point, a human starting point, and they're really standing on Scripture and forcing that through the pages, and it just doesn't work. Absolutely. To have faithful confession or true unity takes faithful confession from the Word of God, subservient to the Word of God. Thank you so much. You've done an excellent job of that for us today. Pastor Brian Thomas, thank you for joining us for Concord Matters and talking us through the Saxon Visitation articles. And again, not a formal part of the Lutheran Confessions per se, but is definitely a useful insight into our Lutheran application of the Lutheran Confessions in order to handle the doctrines that divide, especially between the Lutherans and the Calvinists. Thank you, Pastor Thomas, for teaching that so well for us today. And thank you, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.